Welcome to Elmira Baptist Church Sunday School. I'm glad that everybody is here. And welcome, a warm welcome to everybody. And also, uh, periodically I hear from either verbally or through the telephone or in person occasionally uh, from people that watch online. Welcome to all of you. We want to make sure that we always include you. Welcome to all of you that are watching our, uh, our Sunday School. Uh, this is uh, a... We are studying Colossians, and we are on chapter 1. If you want to be turning to chapter 1 of Colossians, uh, we're going to be reading from there. And uh, we're, in, we're on verses 15 through 18 specifically, and Colossians chapter 1. And let's have a word of prayer and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Father, thank you so much for the privilege of studying your word. I pray that you would be with us, that you would help us, Father, to be able to, I know it's morning and some of us are tired, and I pray that you would, some of us didn't sleep, some of us had other challenges, there challenges in our lives. I pray, Father, we could take this moment to be able to focus in on your word and what you would have to say to us from this passage. We thank you for this book of Colossians. We thank you for Paul writing this book. And um, we know it applies to us as much as it did to those at Colossae. We thank you for each family represented here. Thank you for our church. We thank you for those that are watching home. We pray for those that are sick and hurting, that are injured, that you provide healing, and that you would be with each one. Thank you, Father, for this time. Again, help us to honor you as we look at this passage together. Um, this is, you have a handout, the blue handout, uh, right here. And uh, everybody have a blue handout? Okay. If somebody comes in, uh, if you would uh, direct them to the blue handout in the back here. Uh, I'm going to be reading uh, from Colossians 1 through, I think I'm going to go to 23. Now, we're not doing 19 through 23. We're doing 15 through 18. But I, I want, if you'll read along with me, I want to get the sense of the passage and how it flows. That's why I want to read this to you. So uh, don't fall asleep. Don't let your mind drift. Stay with me. I'd like you to follow along as I will read out loud. Okay. Colossians 1, 1 through 23. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, or Timothy, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. Since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints, for the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof you heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God and truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who for you is a faithful minister of 
Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to declare desire that you might be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might according to his glorious power, unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father, which hath made us meet, fit, or equipped, to be qualified, to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. I don't think Paul has done a period yet. Uh, he keeps going. There may be one there. I missed it. Oh, yeah, there's one up in eight there. Uh, verse 15 through 18 are going to be our, our current passage that we're looking at. And that's the next verse. Uh, chapter 1, verse 15. Colossians 1, verse 15. Who is the image? Who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature? For by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things are created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in him all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether there be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in his sight if you continue in the ground faith grounded and settled and be not moved away from the hope of the gospel which you have heard which was preached to every creature which is under heaven whereof I Paul am made a minister so I read the whole passage to kind of give you a flow there um, and having study first part it means a lot more to me now I can see the breakdown um, and looking at verse 15 today is what we're going to be looking at we're actually going to be looking at only eight words today I know we're moving at a uh, a, uh, <laughs> a jet pace here but uh, who is the image of the invisible God and the rest of the verse is the firstborn of every creature so uh, if you're coming in, grab a handout in the back. And now the handout, starting with A, verses 15 through 23, and more particularly 15 through 18, chapter 1, these present the Lord Jesus Christ clearly as God, supreme over all, 
absolutely superior to all things. And the passage, and I put a bunch of quotes up here under A. Look at the quotes that I put there. Now, I want you to listen to these quotes and see if you think that scholars, uh, commentators, uh, theologians believe that this is an important passage. It proclaims the absolute and unqualified supremacy of our Redeemer, Curtis Vaughn. Expresses the primal significance of God. That primal means primary. Fear. The most striking of all Pauline expressions of conviction as to the status of Christ, CFD rule. It has the highest possible importance for Christian doctrine, HCG rule. And that's not a typo. I think one's, one's the father, one's the son. Number five. Now, Christological means having to do with the study of Christ. Christology is the study of Christ. Christological means having to do with that. As a Christological statement, this passage, it has scarcely an equal, certainly no superior, Nicholson. And then finally, it represents a loftier conception of Christ's person that is found elsewhere, anywhere else, in the writings of Paul, Scott. Now, I hope that you will see that we all scripture is important. But we have a passage here that is especially relevant to us today because it affirms the supremacy of our preeminence of Christ, the second person of the Trinity. And look at the note. Paul's affirmation and profound description of Christ as God is striking in light of the fact that 30 years before he wrote this epistle, Christ was crucified with thieves on a Roman cross. And that's the lowest of lows. It was an agonizing death. It was an agonizing humiliation. It's a death of the worst of the worst criminals. But here we have the loftiest portrayal of Christ as God in the flesh. And that's striking contrast to me. Uh, item B, the statement of the supremacy of Christ in this passage is Paul, part of Paul's answer to the heresy at Colossae. And that heresy held, later became known as Gnosticism, we believe, it held a false view of Christ. There were three major problems with this heresy. Number one, it perverted the doctrine of salvation by grace. It taught that faith in Christ alone was insufficient to save. Uh, it involved, salvation involved secretive knowledge. It involved works. It involved the ability to connect with a shadowy emanation or creature or angels between God and man. Um, so, uh, and I put in parenthesis, it involved, uh, rather, it taught that Christ was not God and that he was inadequate to save. He was one of those emanations between God and man the heretics taught. Number two, this heresy 
a problem with this heresy was it falsely portrayed the Christian life because it emphasized works, um, ceremonies, things that people could do. And in some case, cases, the philosophy was that it didn't matter what you did, kind of libertinism uh, or license to sin because they said, well, the body's an apparition, so it didn't really matter what you did. There were all kinds of crazy things that, that they that were believed there. Now, you probably wonder, well, what does libertinism mean? So I looked that up so I could give you an accurate description. It's a disregard of moral morality and uh, restrictions and authority in sexual and other matters of faith. Um, and and you, we saw that we saw that in the in the, the 20th century, in the mid 20th century, you heard people say things: do what feels good, do what comes naturally, live free love, live free, all kinds of things like that. Slogans, and I can't remember all of them. Libertinism is a lifestyle or pattern of behavior characterized by self-indulgence. Me first, the me generation in the 60s. Uh, self-indulgence, a lack of restraint, especially involving sexual promiscuity and rejection of um, religious or other moral authority. And it comes from uh, libertine, that's a person who's devoid of most responsibility, moral principles, or restraints that are observed by a society or face. So, um, <clears throat> How sad. Um, three, it denied the deity of Christ. It denied the deity of Christ, our Redeemer and Creator. The false teachers taught that Christ, again, was one of those many shadowy spirits in the gap between heaven and earth or God and man. And so what Paul employed the principle of, instead of saying what's wrong with that heresy, he told them what the truth was. And Charles Erdman said, error is best met by a positive statement of the truth. And so I thought about this a little bit and wanted to share with you um, that this, this doctrine, the deity of Christ and the supremacy of Christ, that Paul wrote this book and that's the theme of this book, is the preeminence of Christ. Our understanding and adherence to the supremacy of Christ is essential because our view of Jesus Christ is critical to our faith. It determines, our view of this determines our reaction, our view, our understanding of who God is, what he's done, what he will do, what he wants for us, uh, and what he wants for each one of us. Jesus, this doctrine teaches that Jesus is the exact visible image of the invisible God. It teaches that Christ is divine. There's no Christianity without the deity of Christ. We're called Christians, one of Christ. If Christ is not God, we're not Christians. It's, it's an essential element of our faith, and there's no salvation. There's no church. There's no revelation of God, who God is. 
There's not any, even any creation because the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken of it. We'll get into later as the creator. Without him, there's nothing. If he wasn't God, then he couldn't have raised from the dead. So he is God. He is, and that's critical to our faith. This is one of the, I can't say it's the most important passage, but it's important to us because it's like Paul Holy Spirit lifted the curtains to let us see a little glimpse of who Christ is. This is truly a wonderful passage in that it helps us to see who Christ is. So that brings us to the supremacy of Christ, verses 15 through 18. Now, <clears throat> so we are looking at verse 15 today. Who is the image, speaking of Christ, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creation? We're looking at who is the image of the invisible God? Those eight words, unless I miscounted them. <laughs> Who is the image of the invisible God? You think, couldn't you have gone a little farther, Scotty? <laughs> well, you know what? I didn't want to hurry. I really wanted to take time and look at this. It is so important to us to realize. So there are three statements in this passage between 15 and 18. There are three things that, three major statements concerning Christ that demonstrate his, his supremacy. Number one that we're looking at today is that he is God. That's verse 15a. Number two is that he created all things by him and for him. And he's before all things. And by him, things actually consist. That word actually means hang together. And then he is the head of the body or the church, number three. So deity, creation, and the church. Now, these things are kind of summed up in verse 19, where it says, For it pleased the Father and him that all fullness should, uh, all fullness dwell. That fullness is that word that Paul loves to use, pleroma. And the heretics used it as that space between God and man, the fullness. And, and Paul reinvented that word. And he said, all the Godhood dwells in Jesus Christ. The sum total of all God's essence, his perfections, his powers, his attributes dwell personally in Jesus Christ. Now that's a real statement. And we know that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins and made it possible for us to accept him. But Jesus Christ is the expression of God. He's the visible expression of the invisible. How would we know God if we couldn't, we didn't have Jesus Christ to have it, to come here to earth, lived, and taught us who God is? And then commissioned the apostles to teach and establish the church. Well, these statements aim directly um, at the false teachers. I'm reading right under the church at the bottom paragraph of under to the supremacy of Christ, page one. These statements aim directly at the false teachers. I call them truth terrorists in our today's terms. I, I really love that term, truth terrorists, and whose system these angelic shadowy spirits and emanations served as somehow mediators between God and man if you had the secret knowledge to be able to communicate with them and they replaced Christ 
and his function as the only mediator. Paul emphasizes Christ's supremacy, his supremely significant and sovereign position as Savior. He is preeminent. The ideas here are similar to Hebrews chapter 1, 2 through 4, and John 1 through 18, which we'll read in a minute. So turn to page, and we're on page 2 here. Um, so the first statement said there were three things, that, three major statements that Paul makes relating to Christ and how Christ is, uh, is, has supremacy over everything. Well, first is that he is God, he is deity. So the first statement is deity in Christ. And the, the scripture says, who is the image of the invisible God? Eight words and passages that we're going to read in a minute are 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6 and Hebrews 1, 3. Now I want to give you a quote here from a guy named Brian Bill. I, I, I um, it's from Edgewood Baptist Church. And I, I came across this quote. I went back and looked at their website to see if they, he was a, a good, a good, honest, uh, fundamental man. And the best I could tell he is. But the quote is exceptional. So I, I can't vouch for his other character, but his quote is, is good. He said, Paul doesn't mince any words here, John. Uh, Colossians 1.15. Paul doesn't mince any words here. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Now, he goes on to say, images convey meaning way beyond what words can describe. My wedding band, he says, represents the fact that Beth, his wife, finally said yes to me. When we see the Statue of Liberty, something unexplainable takes place deep inside, doesn't it? And today, perhaps more than ever, the image of the American flag flying over ground zero ignites the feelings of patriotism, sadness, and maybe even anger in our hearts. As powerful as these symbols are, he goes on to say, they are simply representations of far deeper realities. My ring doesn't make me married. Rather, it's a symbol that I am married. The Statue of Liberty doesn't in and of itself do anything. It stands for a nation that honors freedom. The American flag is a powerful national symbol, but it only represents what our country is all about. He says, listen carefully. Jesus is not just a symbol of God. He is God himself. Jesus is God himself. And I do that. You know what I'm doing. <laughs> that means that's on the quiz. <laughs> it's an important thing. Jesus is God himself. In the military, they used to stomp, but they wanted you to remember something. <laughs> Jesus is God himself. Okay, going on. He said, the word image in the Greek is E-I-K-O-N, thus I can tell it's pronounced akon, akon. And it refers to likeness, manifestations, or replica. And don't worry about that. I put it in the handout. In that culture of Paul's day, image was a die or a stamp that was able to make exact reproductions. And 
Now, I can confirm this, but he says that passports in Paul's day had a section called uh, icon or acon. It was distinguishing mark that described something about the person that set him apart from everyone else. So that passport, what he, they could show that, and it would provide identification for the whole. Jesus is the invisible image of the invisible God. He is God himself. He both represents and manifests or reveals God to the world. <clears throat> okay, let us look at the image. So I've got this divided up into the image and the invisible God. It's only eight words. There's only two points here. Okay. Christ always has been and is and always will be. So did you get that? Always is. Always, always has been. Always is. And always will be the image of God. See Vaughn. Curtis Vaughn. Quote from Curtis Vaughn. And the word uh, acon, E-I-K-O-N, the word from which we get icon, is, um, you know, a lot of, you see a trademark, even our church has kind of a trademark. It's the wheat. A symbol there, uh, speaking of the, the harvest and the scriptures and uh, the cross as an icon for Christianity, uh, uh, trademarks that companies have. Sometimes they'll have their initials in a kind of an interesting way. And don't, a lot of companies have those symbols and icons that stand for things. And you see those things and it reminds you. Well, that's what we get from this word acon. And Number one, it can mean likeness or resemblance, like an image stamped on a coin or like a parental likeness in a child. Um, my child doesn't look anything like me, my son. <laughs> Red hair and blue eyes, right? This looks just like me, right? So, but but uh, some of us have kids that look a lot like us, either the father or mother, but I look a lot like my mom and dad, kind of both. And uh, so a likeness or resemblance. Now, representation number two, picture or portrayal or even a reflection in the mirror. And then there's manifestation or revelation. And in this case, the Lord Jesus Christ is an exact, an exact manifestation and the image of the invisible God. Christ is the exact likeness, the very image of God, the perfect representation, and the revelation of God the Father. John 14, 9 tells us, Jesus saith unto him, Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? He that hath seen me, Christ, hath seen the Father. And how sayest then, show us the Father? <laughs> Lord Jesus says, you're looking at him. Now, uh, I want to share... Uh, a couple of quotes here. This is from uh, MacArthur's commentary, The Image of the Invisible God. Uh, the Greek word for image is akon, which, from which the word icon derives. It means copy or likeness. Jesus Christ is the perfect image, the exact likeness of God, and is of the very form of God, and has been so from all eternity, 
by describing Jesus in this manner, Paul emphasizes that Christ is both the representation and the manifestation or revelation of God. Thus, he is fully God in every way. Now, all those things are important uh, because if you, in theology, if you're off in one thing, by the time you get down here, it changes your whole theology. So it's, it's really important to have a proper view of God. And then uh, the other quote that I had here, another quote that I have, is that this is a little bit longer quote, but I, I couldn't cut any out because I just thought it was too good. So forgive me ahead of time. This is MacArthur from a sermon that he preached called Christ Above All. Looking again at Colossians chapter 1 and a very vital portion of scripture, one that speaks to me of the most important personality of the universe, that is God, the God of heaven revealed as the Son. This is the very heartbeat of Christianity, he says. This is the very essence of all that we believe, the very foundation of our faith. This is the battleground over which we fight the cults. We know that every time there's a cult, you can look at their view of Christ, and it's always, I don't think I've ever seen a cult that had the right view of Christ, because that's where they attack so that they can put in their false doctrine. So this is the battleground over which we fight the cults and the isms and everything that wants to take out of Christianity its very lifeblood. That is the issue of the deity of Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul's theme in Colossians 1, 15 through 19. Now this is a very vital passage to the argument of the book and a much more vital passage to the argument to the whole of Christianity. That's speaking of the importance of this passage. Somebody once called, and it's been repeated a multiple of times, they called the Bible the Jesus book. In a sense, that's true. If you understand the Bible, you understand that it is the book about Christ. It's the book about the Lord Jesus. In the Old Testament, now listen to the P's. He's already got his alliteration down. This is great. In the Old Testament, there's the preparation for Jesus coming. In the gospel, there's a presentation of Christ. He has come. In Acts, there's the proclamation. The message of salvation of Christ, in Christ is, is uh, announced. In the epistles, we have, we study the personification, that is, for me to live as Christ, and how Christ, who has died and risen again from the grave, returns to live in his people. In Revelation, there's the predomination for the Christ on the throne the reign of the king or the land, lamb on his throne. He talks about the preparation, the presentation, the proclamation, personification, the predomination. Well, that, that's amazing to me. Anyway, uh, not to distract us, but he's saying that the Bible is a book about the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he says, so in every sense, the Bible is Christ's story. It's the book that tells us all about him. So the Bible is the book about Christ. It's the book about the revelation of God and the coming of Christ into the world. It's a book about God becoming a man. In every aspect of the, of the Bible, the facets of this are made clear. Now, I put this in bold when I put the quote down here because I wanted to make sure that I put it across to you. So listen carefully. 
But of all the statements in the Bible, in the word of God about God becoming a man, none is more significant than the one in Colossians 1, chapter 15. For here we have the identification of the Son of God very, very clearly. Clearly, The Son, in verse 13, where it says, Who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us from the kingdom of his dear Son, that Son is the antecedent of who is the invisible uh, image of God, verse 15. So that's the Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who is the image of the invisible God. It's Jesus Christ who is the visible image of the invisible God. So the attack of the particular heresy, which apparently later developed into which is now known as Gnosticism, the attack was upon the deity of Christ and his total sufficiency as Savior. So in the first three chapters of Colossians, Paul takes this issue on. And if you look at almost every heresy, almost every thing where we rebel against God, it comes to be an attack on some feature of God, some attribute or some other character of God. Okay, so moving on, I think we're at uh, the third one, two, three, four, five bullet. First, the fourth bullet. The likeness of the Son, Jesus, to the Father is so perfect as to fit him to be the completed and final revelation of God to men. And in this sense, Christ is declared to be the image of the invisible God. Uh, Charles Bergman. And I want to read Hebrews 1. We're going to actually read Hebrews 1, 1 through 4. If you'll stay at Colossians and listen, God, who at sundry times and in divers manners spake in time past, Unto the until the fathers by the prophets hath in these last days spoken unto us by his son whom he hath appointed heir of all things by whom also he made the worlds who speaking of his son the Lord Jesus Christ who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. In verse 4, being made so much better than the angels, as have by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Um, Jesus is the express image of his Father. Um, well, Number number five bullet there. Christ is the image of God in the middle of page two. Christ is the image of God in the sense that the nature and the being of God are perfectly revealed in Christ. God through Christ enables us to know God and he makes God viewable. Or reveals God and his nature. Now, 
when uh, AJ was teaching on the um, attributes of God, um, I, I thought, you know, I, I, I would like to have, um, I came across an ad for a, um, a book called a Systematic Summary of Bible Truth, Bible Doctrine, and essentially it's a systematic theology in, 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 in terms that uh, were less theological, a little easier to understand. It's by MacArthur and a guy named Richard Mayhew. So, so I bought that book, and and, uh, and I, I've enjoyed that because it, a subject come up, and I go and look it up, and it's been real helpful. So I looked the subject up in that book, and it said that the second person of the Godhead also, also fully exhibits and exercises all the divine, that's the Lord Jesus Christ, exercises all the divine character, characteristics and attributes of God. And they have a table there that lists all the attributes shown in Scripture that the Lord Jesus Christ has, that God also has. And they are eternality, uh, glory, grace, holiness, immutability, not, not changeable, life, love, mercy, omnipotence, all-powerful, omnipresence, all, um, all uh, everywhere at the same time present, uh, omniscience, uh, all-knowing, all-knowing, righteous, self-existent, sovereignty, truth, and these things are exactly the attributes that God has shown to have. According to the New Testament, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Therefore, anyone who saw Christ is said to have seen the Father. In other words, the attributes and characteristics of the Father reside also in the person of his Son. So Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. He is God. Um, the impact, the last bullet on page two under image, the impact is that we clearly and without question um, can see that scripture and Paul here portrays Christ as God. He's the only means way to approach and know the Father. Without Christ, we can't know who God is, what he's like, what he's doing for us, what he wants for us, what he wants us to do. The Lord Jesus Christ is the radiance of his Father's glory and the exact image of God. We have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, I, I read that verse at least a thousand times. Now, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. And I didn't, didn't catch the fact that that says we have the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. That reminded me of the song, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Look full in His wonderful face and, and the things of earth will go strangely dim. So I wanted to read 2 Corinthians 4, 4 through 6. And whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. For we preach not ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who commanded the light to shine out of darkness, hath shined in our hearts, to get the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Um, another quote that I have for you 
is um, long. <laughs> but I want you to listen. Don't 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 think about lunch. Don't think about uh, where you're going. Don't think about what you're doing this afternoon on the barbecue and Monday. I want you to think about this. Stay with me. Stay with me. And this is from that same sermon, Christ above all. He says, so it is Christ who is the only really true, visible, perfect, flawless, absolutely accurate image of the invisible God. Beloved, if it were not for him being in the image of God, none of us would be ever, ever able to approximate it. Um, look at Hebrews 1.3 that I just read. Uh, and here again, you have a statement about Christ who... And who refers to the word son in verse 2. The son or his son who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Now here we find first of all that the son that is Christ is the brightness of his glory. That, now that what that means is, is the setting forth of God. The representation of God. He, that would, he is that which comes from God to reveal the essence of God. Can in your mind right now, can you picture God? I mean, can you picture it's impossible? God is a spirit, doesn't have a face. We hear words, the arm of the Lord, and things, but God is so big. I think if we had an understanding of what and who God is, it would blow our heads apart, our heads would explode. It's just too much. It's infinite. We have finite knowledge, and He is infinite. The way we know God is through Jesus Christ. He's the visible image of the invisible God. Okay. He is that which comes from God to reveal the essence of God. Secondly, notice in Hebrews 1.3, he is the express image of his person, the exact image, the perfect image. The substance is the same. The word here, incidentally, image, is used in the classic Greek for a stamp, as we've said, an engraving tool that made an exact stamp, an exact, exact reproduction. Jesus is the exact reproduction of God. Nothing missing, nothing altered, nothing changed. In John 1.18, it said, No man has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son, who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. The purpose of the Lord Jesus Christ was to declare the Father. And when we saw the Son, John says, when we saw the Lord Jesus Christ, we beheld his glory, and it was the glory of the only begotten of the Father. And it was just obvious that he was, he says, that he was manifesting or revealing God. In Philippians 2, 6, it said, who being in the form of God, so he was in the form of God. Christ having all the character and form of God became a man, made himself of no reputation, and took upon himself the form of a servant. Now, he goes on in, in his message to say, you know, when Paul spoke, or rather, when uh, God spoke to the Old Testament saints, and I had not thought about this, they couldn't see him. I mean, they could see the pillar of fire, but they couldn't see him, but they could hear him. And they said the word of God came, and, they, and often there was thunder, and sometimes there were words that were said, and they heard him. So the, the, spe the speaking was the manifestation of God in the Old Testament. God's manifestation was verbal. And when Jesus Christ came into the world, John wrote, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. And, uh, and the Word was God. 
because the Jews thought about the expression of God as being verbal, the word of God. So Jesus also was the word of God, but he also was the very image of God, the expression and sharing more. The Son then is the only perfect representation of God. Men are not, we're not, we're not a perfect representation of God. We're a marred image. Only Christ, only in Christ is God seen as absolute perfection. In 2 Corinthians 4, 4, 6, that we just read, for God commanded that the light shine out of darkness and it's shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Now, how did he do it? How did God give to man the light of the knowledge of the glory of God? In the face of Jesus Christ. God has declared his glory in the face of Jesus Christ. That is where God is manifest. He says, going back and looking at Colossians 1, looking at that word image, it means a precise copy, a replica. Christ is a perfect, unblemished replica of God. He's not just a sketch. He's all filled in, full color. <laughs> My words, not his. In him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, Colossians 1.19 that I read earlier. It pleased the Father that in him all the pleroma, the fullness, should dwell. Jesus then, beloved, he finishes, is the full, the final, and the only revelation of God with nothing missing or lacking. Okay. Looking at the invisible God number two, why is God invisible? Give your mind. Why do you think God's invisible? Why do I think God is almighty? I know. Isn't that a question? I, 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 you know, I, I'm not trying to trick you. I don't have the answer. I think because the answer is God chose to be in his sovereignty. Certainly, if, if we could see him, uh, I don't know if we'd ever get up off our faces because those that came in contact with any manifestation of of the Lord Jesus Christ and the theophany, the, the personal appearance of the Lord in the Old Testament, or uh, some image of God, they got down on their face before God. And he chose to do that. I'm not sure we could stand being able to see. Yes? Um, going back to attributes of God, uh, to use contemporary sort of thinking and phrasing, uh, God doesn't exist in the same dimension that we do. Exactly. Yeah. We don't have and a clue. We see him because he is not on the same plane of existence. Yes. Right. Yes. Uh, AJ was saying God's not in the same dimension, but in our words, he is so far above our knowledge and ability to understand. But yet, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ, his son, so that we could understand. And even used the term, you know, son, so that we could understand who he was. Well, I think in terms of like the universe, we can't see the universe in its totality. So how could you see God who created the universe? It was even bigger than the universe. Than the universe. Yeah. If you could see God, you wouldn't have faith. Yeah. Amen. And so God is invisible to our physical sight, um, but not and cannot be discovered by our finite mind. 
um, uh, intellect, imagination, and reason. I can't. I'm sorry, John 14, right? Yeah. Uh, the the, the, the uh, disciples as the Lord draws upon him. And in John 14, verse 8, he says, I do with you, Solomon, and you don't know me. I read that. Yeah, so <laughs> isn't that amazing that I. Yeah. Yes. He yeah. said to Philip, You've seen me, you've seen the Father. Yeah. Right. And, so. and that, that, that's the th They didn't want to accept the revelation that, that God gave them. You know, isn't that, isn't that so human? You know, well, what about this? I've just shown you, you know. Uh, we can't understand and comprehend God's purposes, but Jesus Christ came and told us what his purpose was for us. And God can't be known except in and through Christ. He that has seen me have seen the Father. And um, I want to share one last quote here with you. The image of the invisible God gives an additional thought that um, this is from Vines. The image of the invisible God gives an additional thought suggested by the word invisible that Christ is the visible representation or, revel or revelation and manifestation of God to created beings. He's the likeness expressed in this manifestation and that manifestation is involved in the relationship of the, of the Trinity uh, the essential relations of the Godhead and therefore is unique and perfect. He that have seen me have seen the Father. In some way, when we see Christ, because he has the same attributes and the being and his nature is the same, we've seen Christ. Not visibly we've not seen God, but we've seen him. And um, Christ also neither knoweth any man the Father save accept the son and he that means anyone whomsoever the son will reveal him and the Lord stand ready to reveal his God to, to all now so questions not to be this is rhetorical questions that the pastor would say do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is God in the flesh the visible expression of the invisible God, the Father? Do you recognize the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior? Also, do you in love, uh, do you rather love him and live for him? It says if you love him, you'll obey his will and obey his commandments. Do you obey his commandments and serve him? And the word comes to mind from the song again. Turn your eyes upon Jesus and the things of earth will go strangely dim. Look full in his wonderful face. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you, Father, for being with us this morning. I pray as we think about these things in the future, you would help us to more clearly see the reality of the truth of these things. We pray that you would help us to see the importance of this doctrine, this teaching, and how key it is and how essential it is to our faith. Thank you for each one that's here. We pray again that you'd be with those that are watching, those that are here in person, and each family that's represented, that you bless and keep and heal.
provide as you have promised. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.